You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Ripley's Believe it or not, Wax Museum. Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. It was hour two of sitting in a Ford Taurus with no keys in my high school parking lot in 20 degree weather. My body heat had warmed up the car so much that moisture collected on the interior windows, only to quickly turn into ice. A sheet of frost so thick I could not see out of the vehicle. I was in an igloo, which happened to have leather seats, freezing, and I started to think, we may have planned this attempt to skip school too hastily. We were seniors in high school and had arrived earlier that morning, and, while meeting in the commons, decided on an impromptu plan to skip the second half of school and go to a nearby horse track. Me and my buddies did this often in high school, skipped half days to go betting or we skipped whole days to go on road trips. The previous year, our junior year, we executed our grandest plan. We painted our masterpiece. We skipped school and left the country. We drove to Canada and then back to Akron, Ohio, unnoticed. And the problem with painting a masterpiece that young is you start to believe that everything you doodle is an act of flawless genius. You get cocky, and the next thing you know, You are spending a full day in a frozen car, stuck in the parking lot of the very school you were trying to escape. The plan we had devised in the morning was simple, but it was impromptu and had definite risk vectors. My buddy Tyson and I, both frustrated with school, decided we would forge notes from our parents, each claiming that we were visiting a nearby college that day. You were allowed to have six days off to visit a college. And these notes would say we were leaving after our first few classes. To avoid suspicion, our exact departures and colleges would be different. I'll write the notes, I told Tyson. Every time we skipped school, I would forge a note from our respective parents. We did it so regularly that we started intercepting legitimate notes from them. Donations to the school, offers to help with bingo and I would forge a facsimile of the legitimate note so that the school would never see what their real handwriting looked like. Nope, I got this one, Tyson replied. I think we should stick to the traditional plan, I insisted. Nope, this is a simple one. I got it, Tyson said and left for homeroom. I turned my note into the principal's office first as my note had me departing first. 
I'm going to visit the Cleveland Institute of Art today, I told the secretary. It's my dream college. Leaving after second period with my parents. Here's my note. Hmm, okay. All right, leave it there, the secretary replied. And I left. A few minutes later, a buddy of mine, who was delivering mail for the office, found me and said, Hey man, I overheard them saying they think that note is suspicious. And they're going to call your parents. Working quickly, I called up Kenny Shoes, the shoe store where I worked. Got a hold of my 20-year-old manager and asked if she would call the school's office claiming to be my mom and tell them I have her permission to go ahead and visit the Cleveland Art Institute. Is this illegal? She asked. I don't know, I answered. But if you do this for me, I'll promise to dye all the shoes for the next two wedding parties. Color match bridal footwear was a big thing at the time, and everyone at the store hated dealing with it. Will they believe I'm your mom? I have kind of a high-pitched voice. I go to an all-guys Catholic high school. Most of us don't know two women in life we aren't related to. There's no way they will suspect you're not my mom. She made the call. I would learn later from my mail buddy that this assuaged the staff's fear. But at the moment, I was busy looking for Tyson to warn him to expect similar pushback. I found him as he was entering his next period and barely had time to explain the situation. Tyson, they were super suspicious of my note. They were going to call my parents. I had my manager calls my mom. Hopefully that works. I don't know. I wonder if we should stage a fake call as your dad. Oh, don't worry. They are not going to question my note, Tyson answered and confidently walked in to his next class. People I'd like to have a drink with. Jeremy J. Van Ernt. When men tour breweries and we see huge fermentation tanks or giant casks for aging liquor, we always do the same joke. I'd love to fall into that and drink my way out. Jeremy J. Van Ernt did what we always claim we wanted to do. Jeremy arrived at a quick trip gas station in Marshfield, Wisconsin at 11.50 p.m. and entered the walk-in beer freezer. Quick trip closed at midnight. So the cashier locked everything down, including the walk-in freezer, which contained Jeremy. Jeremy saw the cashier locking the freezer, and at this point, most people would have said something. Maybe because they were a bit claustrophobic. Or maybe because they realized that frostbite would set in in less than two hours. Or perhaps because they had places to be and didn't want to spend all night in an unlit beer freezer. Most people would have yelled or screamed, or generally kicked up a fuss. Not Jeremy J. Van Ernt. Sensing the opportunity of a lifetime, he quietly watched the door shut and proceeded to drink as much inventory as possible until the next morning when another employee reopened the store and unlocked the freezer. This story could only happen in Wisconsin. Yes, there are other states where citizens can handle freezing temperatures. And yes, there are a few states where the average customer is willing to be barricaded into a liquor cabinet for a night. 
But only a Wisconsinite can handle the Venn intersection of, I think I can survive this cold long enough to drink all this beer. Don't believe me? A 2009 report by 24-7 Wall Street entitled The Drunkest and Driest Cities in America reviewed drinking data on U.S. cities and concluded that 12 of the top 20 hardest drinking cities in America were located in Wisconsin. And if that were not enough, let's hear from the Marshfield Police Chief, the city where this happened, Rick Gramaza, who responded to the incident. We've dealt with people who intentionally hide and get locked inside places with the purpose of committing a crime. But we've never had somebody accidentally locked in a place and not make any attempt to be rescued or get out because they're satisfied with the circumstances. He just decided to run it out for the night. It had everything he needed. From the Washington Post, October 27, 2017. The next morning at 6 a.m., a Quick Trip employee reopened the store. And the moment the freezer was unlocked, Van Ert, quoting our sheriff again, made a beeline from the beer cooler to the door without any attempt to pay for what he had consumed or broken, and drove home. The store reported that Van Ert consumed one 18-ounce Ice House beer and three 24-ounce cans of Four Loco, and also knocked over and broke three 30-packs of Bush beer on his way out. And it's not clear how much of that Van Ert also drank. Personally, I don't think a man like Van Ert ruins a lot of beer by accident. Van Ert was charged with retail theft. And it's kind of amazing to me that he got off so lightly because there is no way Jeremy J. didn't urinate in that freezer. To begin with, he clearly entered that quick trip already buzzed. No one, and I don't care how hard you drink, decides to spend all night in a beer freezer that quickly unless they have already enjoyed at least a few cocktails. Then you add that he drank about 90 combined ounces of Four loco and Ice House and sat or paced in the same room for six hours? He definitely relieved himself in that freezer. As I think about this, Van Ert must have knocked over all that bush intentionally to flood the place in cheap amber beer in order to hide the fact he pissed all over the floor, right? And if that's the case, then he's a criminal mastermind. The Hans Gruber of Marshfield, Wisconsin, who, when his original hasty plan to drink free beer went wrong, consciously spilled the cheapest beer in the freezer, so he's not additionally charged as a sex offender or a health code violator or whatever else they add when you whip out your dick and urinate in a public beer freezer. Cynics will point out that Van Ert's retail theft, which, perhaps unsurprisingly, also triggered a parole violation, will surely cost him more than if he simply paid for one 18-ounce Ice House beer and three cans of Four Locos. But, and perhaps this is why you become a cynic, such people don't see the brilliance of Van Ert's plan. Yes, that ended up being the most expensive can of Four loco he will ever chuck. But for a mere ticket, Jeremy J. Van Ert has one of the greatest drinking stories on earth. An astonishing tale in which he is equal parts Harry Houdini, 
Yukon Cornelius, and Keith Richards. Plus, unlike a lot of great tales, it can be easily inserted into just about any party conversation. Better grab a coat before we go outside, Jeremy. It's chilly. Oh, I think I'll be fine. I've had colder nights. Tyson was two hours late. My note said I would be leaving at 10.30 a.m. It was now 12.30 p.m. And I had been inside a frozen mercury topaz for two hours watching the ice stretch across the vehicle. At that point, I made a vow. I would not go back into school to admit the plan failed. I'd rather them discover my frozen body inside my buddy's car like a dead Everest hiker then return to Chemistry 301. 20 minutes later, as I was relaxed, prepared to die solemnly, Tyson busted through the door. He had no coat, despite the weather, and was holding a giant piece of wood with Hall Pass etched onto it. That's not good, I thought. That doesn't look like a man who's ready to leave campus. Well, they got me, dude, he began. What do you mean? They found out my note was fake. In fact, it, it, it was pretty bad. What happened? All right, well, you know, if we're being honest, I'm a better student than you, Sean. That's very true, Tyson. So the colleges I'm looking at, they're far away, and no disrespect, but I thought it wouldn't sound realistic if I was visiting colleges around here like you. No disrespect taken. So I went in a different direction. Okay, what what did your note say? I said one of my close friends was murdered earlier this week and I needed to attend the funeral. What? I thought they'd feel so guilty they they wouldn't ask any follow-up questions. Do you know how infrequently teenagers get murdered in Copley, Ohio? It would have been a huge story that everyone would know about. Well, it gets worse. How does it get worse than that? Well, the principal called me into the office and said the note looked suspicious. And I didn't know this at the time, but they had already called my parents about it. Oh, boy. Yeah. And they told my parents to stay on the line. So my parents were silently listening on speakerphone when the principal called me in. And again, he's like, uh, this looks a little suspicious, and uh, we're wondering who was murdered. So I panicked, and I said, you know what? The kid never meant that much to me. Why don't I just skip the funeral? And I stood up. Jesus. Yeah, so I stand up to go back to class, thinking it's over, and the principal... He knew he had me trapped in a lie, so he questioned back, that kid didn't mean anything to you. I couldn't think of anything, so I say, uh, people wear a lot of masks in life. And with that, I hear my dad scream. He's on speakerphone. Christ, Tyson. We both exhaled, knowing he was in a lot of trouble. So, I have to get back to Greek history in two minutes, Tyson concluded pointing to the hall pass as he exited the car. But before shutting the door, he dipped his head back in 
to my automotive iceberg and said, oh, and they know about Canada. How do they know about Canada? I asked. They were able to piece it together after my debacle. Like I said, it was bad. You didn't tell him we had a Canadian friend that died? I quipped, and then he shut the door, laughing. The next day, the principal called us into the office and said, I don't have the leeway to discipline you for that Canada stunt last year. Which we found hilarious, because this was a Catholic school. He could have forced us to drive the school's tractor to Manitoba as punishment. They were allowed to do pretty much whatever they want. But... Separately, it was made clear that any time we missed classes in the future, our parents would be getting a confirmation call. And that ended our sport of skipping school. I often tell this story about being stuck in a car in freezing weather while my buddy lied about a funeral. And when the part about the Canada trip comes up, people always say, wait, you flicked school and left the country? And you've never told me that story? And I would always respond, a bit ashamed, it's not that great of a story. It's a good memory, to be sure. One of the greatest days of my life. I laughed so hard that day I lost my voice. But it's not a good story. And it's not a good story because it was the most well-planned event in any of our lives. We plotted that day for months and executed it with practice precision. Competency, even on very impressive missions, doesn't make for a good story. Look at NASA. The Apollo 11 mission proved we could reach the moon. Apollo 12 proved we could explore more of the moon. But ask any American to name an Apollo mission, and they will say 13. The one where mishaps nearly killed everyone. Our best planned missions in high school often resulted in our least interesting stories. They had kind of an understated craftsmanship to them. Quietly successful, like a baseball player that only hits singles. They did not have the exciting twists and turns of a great story. The only exception might have been our friendship-long attempt to make, purchase, or swindle fake IDs for buying beer. That effort was both meticulously planned and disastrous. Our first attempts to get beer underage were indelicate. We would wait outside the most white trash gas stations in town and ask any guy who drove a car with a bird, wolf, or flaming arrow painted on the hood if they would buy us beer. Hey man, you getting beer? We'd inquire. Hell yeah! Would come the inevitable reply. Inevitable least from anyone with a painted carnivore on their hood. We forgot our ideas. Yeah, all five of us. If we gave you this $20 bill, could you buy us, uh, like a case of beer? There are two ages when kids are indisputably hilarious. When they are toddlers, they stumble into walls constantly, never wear pants, claim they are going to marry the family dog. And when they are in their late teens, talking to adults and believing they don't sound like total shitheads. Back then, a case of cheap beer was about $3, which made our proposal sound even more ludicrous. We were paying for Bush Light like it had a street value above cocaine. And we were all wearing ties outside a gas station 
in an effort to make ourselves look older. The main reason teenagers in this phase are so hilarious is because adults do nothing to correct their behavior. No one tells them, kid, people don't fly to Copley, Ohio to do, in your words, strictly business. And five grown men don't split a case of beer. In reality, when five grown men enter a liquor store together, and I contend the correct plural noun for five men in a liquor store is an escalation. When they enter that liquor store, they buy enough booze to submerge a basement because each time any of them hesitate about needing one more bottle, someone in the escalation says, just buy it. We can always finish it tomorrow if we don't get to it tonight. But that never works. For the same reason you can't go on vacation and just leave a week's supply of food out for the dog. It all disappears in the first eight hours, and your house gets destroyed in the process. No, these adults never provided practical feedback. Instead, each stranger listened to our pitch, visibly held back laughter, almost convulsing, like a heron fighting back a fish trying to swim up its neck, and then answered, Oh, sorry, honey, no, I can't tonight. After that, they would presumably drive to their friend's party with their beer and enter the party laughing hysterically. Wait do you hear what happened to me at the gas station. Oh, my God. <laughs> Five teenagers entice, mind you, tell me they've left their wallets back at corporate. They didn't provide any information on the company or their line of work, just corporate. Then these five corporate professionals asked me to buy one case of Bush Light for five grown men to share at seven times the normal price. <laughs> I asked if they were under 21 just as a joke to see how stupid it would get. What did they do? They did this weird fake dad laugh like, oh, ho, 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 then said, you flatter us, ma'am, <laughs> ma'am. I'm 22 years old. Even on the rare occasions that the plan worked, we received no instructive feedback, so our gambit was destined never to improve. We would approach customers for about an hour, explaining our situation as business people without wallets, but each declined to help. Until eventually a guy, it was always a guy, usually covered in white paint, would say, yeah, I got you. And we would hand him a 20, and he would emerge with an impossible amount of beer, go directly to his car, load it all in. Is he stealing from us? We'd wonder. But then he would roll over to us, hand us just one of the cases, and say, Don't do anything I wouldn't do with that. Then he would peel out, keeping both the extra beer and the change. That last part was always unspoken and uncontested. We rapidly learned that this plan was not sustainable. A few of us got arrested. Plus, we couldn't afford to keep paying for beer at a price that wouldn't be fair inside Yankee Stadium. So we vowed to develop a more sophisticated scheme. Let's eliminate the middleman and buy our own fake ID. We heard a t-shirt shop at the arcade 
an old Art Deco mall in Cleveland that was semi-abandoned at the time, would print fake IDs. We went there, and like all failing malls at the time, there were seven t-shirt shops. But we eventually found the one that did print fake IDs. That place and the conversation were amazing in its dubious flirtations with what is and what is not legal. We're looking to buy fake IDs, I told the guy behind the counter in as clandestine a tone as I could manage. No one sells fake IDs, kids. I'd get arrested tomorrow if I sold you a fake ID, came the prompt reply. There was a slight pause, just enough for him to see if our look of disappointment is genuine enough or not. And he continued, But what we do sell here is novelty tourism photos, and those can be very specific. What do you mean by that? We asked. Well... You know how when you go to the Grand Canyon and for a memory, maybe you stand behind one of those wooden cowboy cutouts where you stick your head out on top of the body of a cowboy and someone takes a photo for $10? Well, we do something similar. But instead of sticking your head out of a cowboy cutout, the state of Montana's official ID background with random personal information is behind you. You know, for the memories. We contemplated that for a second, then asked, Okay, do you have any uh, memories that you've done for other customers that we can see just to see how much we would remember these events? The owner showed us a few examples, and to our untrained eyes, they looked exactly like out-of-state licenses. In fact, they looked perfect. Great, we said. Let's get Ohio ones. I don't do Ohio, the owner said. Makes it harder to argue it's a tourism venture. Makes perfect sense, we said in reply to something that actually made no sense whatsoever. Okay. Uh, then I guess Pennsylvania, I proposed. Sure. And maybe Indiana, another friend suggested. And Michigan, came a third. Gentlemen, the store owner interjected. May I suggest that all five of you get Wyoming? Wyoming? Gentlemen, Wyoming is the last state in the Union to not use holograms. You likely didn't notice it when viewing the other memories I've made for other people. But I am not capable of printing holograms. So, while I could print you memories from Pennsylvania or Indiana or Michigan, they would lack the aforementioned holograms and Depending on where you are sharing these memories, say it's someone who looks at a lot of different memories each night, as say his job at, oh, I, I don't know, uh, a bar. And that kind of person might notice the missing holograms. On our memories? Yes, on your memories. I don't know, I replied, speculating out loud. I think five guys... Entering a bar in Cleveland, all from Wyoming? It's more suspicious than missing holograms. I mean, if we go to dive bars, they just want to see something passable. But five guys from the least populated state in the U.S. entering together? I mean, it's like we're daring them. But, the owner interjected, 
This memory is indistinguishable from an official Wyoming license. No technology on Earth could differentiate it. What would we say? I asked the group. We could say we're all at Case Western, like we got some scholarship, someone suggested. We could say we're a hockey team. We could look like hockey players, another offered. Say you're in town for the rodeo, the owner pitched in. Ah, I don't know, I demurred. It's the least populated state in the U.S. To have five Wyomings? Wyoming Knights, corrected the owner. To have five Wyoming Knights walk into the same bar in Cleveland? Statistically, it's like having five Oscar winners walk in. It's just as unlikely. Well, Sean, my buddy Tyson replied, let's hope bouncers don't know as much about geography or statistics as you do. And he plunked down the cash for five Wyoming memories. The first time we used them as a group, we were all arrested. And so we decided that these half measures, strangers at gas stations, out-of-state memories, were not sufficient for a group of truly dedicated underage drinkers such as these. We decided we must have real IDs. We decided to trick the state of Ohio into giving us real licenses. Our idea was bold, but simple. We would pay a 21-year-old who matched our general physical description to give us their birth certificate and social security card for a few hours. Then we would use those documents to get a new license with our photo on it. Straightforward enough, but very risky. It was a bit like lion taming. A simple concept, but there were a lot of ways it could go wrong. Back then, one did not walk out of the DMV with your new license. You received it about a week later in the mail. We had researched our plan a bit and been informed by someone, I can't remember who it was that told us this, that the reason for that delay was because every new photograph was sent down to Columbus where someone compared the new photo to your last picture to prevent fraud. If the pictures look too different, they would not issue the license and begin legal proceedings against every party involved. Looking back at it, this claim is laughable. That a staff of, what, a dozen people was looking at every new license in the seventh most populous state in the Union and asking themselves, can a person really lose this much weight and change their hair that much in five years? Nevertheless, we, being teenagers, found the whole scenario highly credible. So much so that we decided to test the integrity of the system. We wanted to see just how different someone could look between licenses and still receive a new one. We had a buddy that was 21, and we asked if he'd be willing to get a new license looking very different. So different, in fact, that if the state of Ohio was really scrutinizing these pictures, there is no way he would receive the new license. Can I get in trouble? He asked. I don't see how. At the end of the day, you're just choosing a radically different new look for yourself. You may ask. 
How do teenagers with no experience in cosmetics, makeovers, or general aesthetics make a man look vastly different for his photograph? We purchased a werewolf costume. We used the costume paint to make his skin look considerably darker, then glued a beard on him and dyed his hair. My buddy also borrowed his grandmother's impossibly large eyeglasses, each lens shaped like a giant hexagon. Our test subject looked absolutely nothing like himself as he went off to apply for a replacement ID. He received a new license a week later. We did have to pay him an extra $150 because he failed his eye exam due to being disoriented by the strong prescription from his grandmother's eyeglasses. His license had a vision restriction on it for a whole year. But overall, we had proved our plan would work. Later that week, we were at a Bob Evans eating breakfast, and one of the waitresses called me by the wrong name and then asked why I was eating out here. Only after squinting at me a bit closer did she realize she had mistaken me for someone else. I'm sorry, she explained. It's just you, you look exactly like one of our cooks. Is he 21? My friend asked instantly. And if so, could we talk to him? And that is how we met the person that would rent his social security card and birth certificate to me to get what we are now calling a misrepresentative ID, rather than a fake ID. Since it was a genuine Ohio State ID, it just had the wrong driver on it. The plan was an abysmal failure. And we were very lucky not to get arrested. I entered the DMV with the cook's papers explained I needed a license, and sat down for my picture. And, as I was preparing to smile with all the jubilation of a person about to finalize a Mission Impossible-esque heist, they asked me, And, Jeff? That was the name of the cook. Can you tell me your mother's maiden name? I wish they had taken a photo of me right as I was reacting to that question. Even more, I wish there was some way for me to get a copy of that picture. Because I don't think anyone, not in vaudeville, in silent movies, in opera, made a face more visibly and comically aghast as I did when they asked me to verify the name of my misappropriated grandmother. You mean the name my mom had before marriage? I asked. Yes. Panicked, I scanned my eyes around the office and noticed that behind the person asking this question was a billboard detailing the fees for each DMV service. A license renewal was listed as $7. Whoa, I exclaimed. Hold on, is this $7? What? Yes, a license replacement is $7. I thought it would be free, you know, off my taxes alone. I knew enough about impersonating adults to bring up that you pay taxes and expect that that entitles you to a vast array of unrealistic benefits. Of course there's a fee, the associate responded. Well, because I don't have a license, I didn't even bring my wallet. Didn't see a point. I need to go get my wallet. All right, well that should not take too long. I will just keep all your papers right here. Something inside me sank as I realized I was probably going to have to pay that cook at Bob Evans a lot more money now that I'd lost his identity papers at a DMV in Fairlawn, Ohio, and potentially implicated him in a federal crime. 
but I managed to conceal my alarm and responded with relative calm. Given that I don't have a wallet, I appreciate you keeping those papers here. I rose from my chair and headed out of the DMV. I had to pay the cook at Bob Evans $300. What am I going to do? The cook screamed at me, justifiably. Just go to the DMV and follow through with the plan, I explained. Say you need a new license. They have your papers. You look enough like me that they won't notice you're a different person. He did so, and it worked. The DMV clerk even joked with him, thinking he was me. I really thought you were trying to scam us. Sorry. And I appreciate you being so careful, he replied in an artificial voice. Think of what would have happened to me if that was a scammer. My identity gone. No, thank you. Very good to see my tax dollars at work here. But those were our bad plans. Great stories, bad plans. The Canada trip was a good plan. We left Akron, Ohio around 6 a.m. We told our parents we were developing film at school in those old-fashioned dark rooms with the red light and vats full of chemicals for a study we did about local wildlife. And the dark room was only available in the morning. I don't think our school even had a dark room. We reached Niagara Falls around noon. One of my friends used his dad's car phone to call the school, and we each took turns pretending to be each other's father, saying our son would not be attending today and giving various excuses as to why. But as we entered eastern Pennsylvania, he remembered that his dad's cell phone plan only worked in Ohio, so we had to do the last two calls quickly. Hello, hello, I barked into the phone in my best somebody's dad's voice. This is Dr. Phil Adamak, father of John Adamak. John is not feeling himself today and will be staying home. Very good, very good. Thank you, thank you. Now, well, due to an unusual set of circumstances, my dear friend Harley Kastner, successful lawyer, is seated next to me and requires the phone. John Adamak grabbed the phone. Yes, yes, good, I have you. Mm, this is Harley Kastner, known lawyer. My son Jeff is not feeling well and will not be. And so it continued. About four hours later, we reached the border. We had heard various reports on what you had to bring. So we had our social security cards and birth certificates with us in plastic bags which was also a funny addition to our early morning plans. Mom, I'm using the school's dark room at 6 a.m. so you will not see me today. Also, can I have my birth certificate? As we approached the border security guard, we reminded each other, be cool, we have our documents if needed. We were surprised by how empty it looked. We were arriving at an odd time in the late morning, and the weather was atrocious. Bitterly cold, with whipping winds. We were the only car. U.S. citizens? The guard asked. Yes. How long are you staying? How long does it take to do a U-turn? Our driver laughed. We explained that we were only entering the country to win a bet, and will immediately turn around. Today, that answer would probably get you shot, or at least bitten by a Doberman. But, back in the 1990s, it resulted in hilarity. The guard waved us forward, laughing. That's the perfect damn reason to visit, 
he laughed, and further offered to take a photo for us to prove we won our bet. We have a photo of the four of us outside our car at the border, taken by a border guard. As we walked back to our car to leave, the guard asked, How are you doing on time? Pretty good, answered our driver. If you think you have 30 minutes, the guard suggested, I recommend the Ripley's, believe it or not, Wax Museum. It's one of Canada's great sites. Editor's note. Astute readers may have noticed that while this chapter is called Ripley's Believe It or Not, the titular attraction shows up exactly once in the entire story, in the very last line. The editor dutifully brought this up to the author, who merely shrugged and ordered another Negroni.